Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Wanted to remind you first before we begin that there is a lot going on in the world of Wealth Formula. Specifically, I want to remind you of this event that there's just a few spots left on. It is our second uh, Wealth Formula Meetup. It's in Dallas, Texas, September 27th and 28th, and uh, it's going to be a really good time. Lots of lectures and cocktails and uh, bus rides and cocktails and networking and cocktails, lots of, uh, lots of stuff, and this is, a, this is an event that is extremely popular, um, not just because of the speakers, not just because of the, um, you know, the real estate tour that we're going to have. But also because this is one of the finest podcast communities ever, and um, there's incredibly high quality, high um, high quality investor, high quality person who listens to this show, and being able to connect with one another is really a really um, you know an, a great thing. So that was certainly the best part of the last meetup, and I think it will be again. Make sure you check it out: wealthformulaevents.com. Again, uh, come out and see Tom Wheelwright, uh, David Steele, me, Doug Lodmel, and, um, you know, the whole team. So anyway, let's get on with today's show. You know, a while back ago, I had uh, this guy on the show. His name uh, is Jonathan Levy. He's a good guy. He created uh, an entire business that was focused on the creation of new Udemy courses. Now, Udemy if you don't know, is a really interesting, um, what's well, a website, there's an app for your phone that allows anyone to make a course and publish it for others to buy. And it's actually really smart because, I mean, think of how much stuff you know that if you want to try to monetize it, I mean, this is a place where you can do it. Now, courses are peer-reviewed, uh, so you get a pretty good idea of my, what might be worth your time, what's trash, and there's plenty of trash, believe me. But it's actually a really, really good deal because you can cherry pick only the highly reviewed courses and uh, just pay a few bucks for them. And you can have, you know, you can have courses on anything. I mean, I've bought all sorts of stuff. It's amazing how cheap learning can be uh, online these days. And because of that, as I sort of alluded to a second ago, I bought a lot of them. I've developed a rather bad habit, I should say, of accumulating courses that I pretty much never watch. And, um, so, for example, this morning, uh, while I was at the YMCA chugging away on the elliptical, I actually thought, well, you know, I've got this huge list of courses. Why don't I 
see, maybe I'll start learning something while I'm on this darn elliptical because it's not exactly fun to be on it, you know, to be a rat uh, um, on your exercise equipment. So I decided I'd finally, you know, choose a course. So, you know, I had a lot of options, as I said. I mean, this is going back probably about six years, and most of them were not really that relevant. I had some random stuff on there, man. But the uh, archive of course, the archive of courses uh, gave me a really interesting glance into sort of what I'd been thinking, um, you know, at various times throughout the past few years. And you know, for example, once I bought a course on how to buy probate property, right, real estate through probate, and you know, it's it's interesting, and it's actually still not a you know something that's not worth just kind of knowing about, but it's. You know, at the time, it sounded like something maybe I'd I'd do. And then I start going through the course, and it's, you know, the idea of going through this and, you know, searching for people who have died and sending letters to their executors about buying single-family homes, uh, hoping that someone responds. Well, you know what? It just doesn't really make any sense for me anymore with the, you know, the perspective that I I have now. Um, Frankly, it sounds like... A lot of work that people do, especially in the real estate space, that, you know, at the end of the day, it's for pretty modest gains in the big picture. Sort of like, you know, I'm talking about wholesaling houses. I'm talking about flipping houses. And I get it. You know, there's that whole like, you know, I'm going to wholesale and make my six, seven thousand dollars. I'm going to you know flip a house and make 20 percent or 30 percent. It's super exciting. The problem is. The numbers are not great. I know some of you are probably really good at that stuff, but it's really hard um, to scale that kind of business into an eight or nine figure business, which frankly, I've come to realize that the effort required to scale something to eight figures is or nine figures or whatever. I haven't done nine figures. I've done eight figures with businesses before, but it's not any more uh, effort than it is to get to a six figure business. The only difference really is ultimately the monetary reward that each business comes with, right? I mean, if you're, if you're in the wrong business and unfortunately I am sure that you may be one of these people or know somebody in the situation, you could be one of the most successful people in that entire business and still have trouble paying your bills and not having the stuff that you want or need. So, if you're just starting out, you're thinking about what to do, uh, my advice to you is try to focus on something that has some significant and upside, if, you know, that's not capped. Um, you know, here's an example. So, you know, say you're flipping houses, all right? Rather than taking that money and just flipping more houses, why don't you take it and start flipping apartment buildings instead? I mean, now there's something that you can literally drive income into because you're not dealing with just like a bunch of people, what they want, you know, trying to, uh, trying to deal with a subjective market. But now you can actually drive income into a property, net operating income, and flip it and keep working up until you're making millions of dollars per transaction instead of 20 grand or 10 grand or five grand or whatever it is now. And if you don't think that can be done, I mean, that's how Western Wealth Capital started. Janet LePage started that way and then moved into apartment buildings. And now they've got, you know, over a billion dollars under management. And, uh, and, and you look at, you know, if you're an investor club, 
Uh, if you're not, by the way, you should sign up at wealthformula.com if you're an accredited investor. But if you have been an investor club and you watch one of those webinars or those offerings, it's insane. You're going to get totally blown away at learning that this is a business that started with somebody flipping houses. Now, it took me a while um, uh, you know, to get to this sort of state of mind to think only big and to say uh, no to everything else. I used to have a problem that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs have, which is chasing shiny objects, uh, but I don't anymore. Um, and that's why you don't see me at every conference and you don't see me investing with a million different groups. It's really not about how much you work. It's about spending your time doing things that are actually impactful. So I've found that the best course of action is to find something that works, that is scalable and keep working on it rather than looking for new projects and partners and losing focus. I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's, that's the key, you know, just keep working on what works. It may seem boring, but you know what? Uh, there is a lot better energy spent doing that than it is to go out there and just try to find new things and new shiny objects and new partners. Um, you know, I, I wish I'd come to this realization earlier, but I've never really had a mentor to help me get there quicker. And frankly, I'm not sure it would have helped because I'm probably, you know, uncoachable anyway. That said, I'm always happy to share my own experiences and evolving perspectives um, these days to anyone who's going to listen to me. So that's why I do these Ask Buck shows. And when we come back, that's exactly what we're going to do. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits, and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder the stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, we have a number of questions today on Ask Buck, so I am going to get with it right away. Uh, the first question is from Bo Cannington, a member of Investor Club and Wealth Formula Network. Bo Here's the question. Hey, Buck, how much of a negative impact do you think that a rising interest rate environment will have on our commercial real estate investments and specifically the syndication investments with Western Wealth Capital? Thank you very much. So, uh, Bo, good question, especially on paper, right? Makes a lot of sense that uh, potentially rising rates uh, could be problematic for multifamily real estate or really for any kind of real estate. Um, and, but let's go back to the basics first, because I think it's important. A lot of people don't have a good enough understanding of this in the first place, which is, um, when does leverage help you in the first place? When does it help to borrow money from the bank? Well, leverage only really helps you if you're borrowing at a rate 
that is less than your effective cap rate. And what I mean by effective cap rate is, um, you know, you're going to constantly drive uh, net operating income into a property if you're increasing value of the property, if you're in a value-add situation. That's what we do in the Western Wealth Capital opportunities that you're talking about. But that rate at which you borrow has to constantly and always be above your effective cap rate. Otherwise, it's going to hurt you. All leverage does is to simply amplify the directionality of your profit or losses. So just like it makes you, you know, profit more if your uh, effective cap rate is is greater than your uh, interest rate, if that, you know, that income drops to a point where now your cap rate is actually below the interest rate, it's going to magnify your losses. So that's at a very basic level. Hopefully that makes sense. If it doesn't, re-listen to it because it's critically important. And for some reason, um, you know, a lot of people don't pay attention to that, especially people who are just getting into real estate for the first time. It's really important. Now, let's talk about the idea of interest rates themselves. I mean, the one that most people are familiar with is the one that's on the news all the time. It's a Fed funds rate, you know, people call it benchmark rate, whatever. Um uh, it's the one that's set by the Federal Reserve. And the way I think about the Fed funds rate is that it's an indicator uh, for whether or not uh, the economy is healthy. It's it's sort of a barometer. When the rates are getting hiked, the economy is in pretty good shape, and the Fed is trying to prevent it from getting too hot uh, and to you know potentially prevent inflation. On the other side, when the you know Fed lowers rates, like it just did, by the way, it signals some level of concern about the economy. It you know suggests that maybe there's some deflationary activity going. It suggests that there's some recessionary activity going on. It's um, you know ultimately the Fed rate is uh, you know it's set by the Fed and it's it's a tool of monetary stimulus to try to control inflation and ultimately mitigate recessionary cycles. So it's a way for the Fed to control uh, the economy. Uh, you know, it's one of the ways that they try to control the economy, uh, one of the monetary policies. So um, now the Fed funds rate does not equate to mortgage rates. I, I hear a lot of people, um, you know, like on social media and stuff talking about, yeah, Fed funds rate goes a perfect time for me to go uh, shop or shop a loan or something like that. And well, you should know a little bit more than that if you're in the business of real estate and um, taking loans out. Um, but, you know, I, I mean, I'm seeing like syndicators do that. The Fed fund rate really affects short term and variable adjusted rates. Really, it's really an indication of what's going on right now in this economy in the very short term. The mortgage rates, um, mortgage rates, of course, then are far more complex. Mortgage rates reflect sort of a longer term um, health of the economy. Um, and there probably, there's a lot that goes into them, but probably the thing that you need to watch the most is the 10 year treasury, uh, which is much more a reflection of, you know, the long-term rates, what the market thinks the, the market's going to be in the future. Right. So if there is a, if there is a belief that there is, um, you know, inflationary, uh, inflation on the horizon, you probably see those rates start to rise. Inflation tends to rise when the economy's, you know, hot. So 
anyway, now, again, uh, so what you should be looking at is the 10-year treasury. Now, I'm giving you a little bit of background rather than just answering Bo's question initially. But the good news right now is that the Fed fund rate was actually cut, so it's actually not going up um, anyway. So we don't need to worry about that right now. Um, but what we we also had a big dip in the 10-year treasury, uh, so our mortgage rates are very favorable right now as well. Um, now, that's interesting because that happened before the Fed cut rates. We, you know, we recently closed on something within our investor club uh, and got really good rates. And that was before the, that was because the 10-year treasury uh, took a dive before, um, it took a dive right before, uh, you know, the whole, this whole thing in the last week or so, a couple of weeks where there's actually a Fed uh, rate in the Fed's rate. Um, okay, but let's, let's, let's move back again. And, and, you know, to Bo's question, say, mortgage rates were going up, what would that mean? And how would that affect our investments? Now, presumably, that would be a suggestion uh, that the 10-year treasury, as we talked about, was going up, which would also be suggestive of an inflationary environment. Now, here's where it's really helpful to be invested in real estate, uh, like multifamily real estate, which is, of course, my, uh, my sweet spot. Inflation also means that we raise rents more, right? So in other words, as rates go up, so do our rents. So uh, the 10-year treasury is reflective of inflation when we, uh, and so the rates go up, but so do rents proportionally. And so theoretically, we should be in good shape and not worry about it too much because it's really just an adjustment for inflation, if you think about it that way. Bottom line is, for me personally, I don't worry too much about rates when it comes to our uh, wealth formula accredited investor opportunities that we're doing. And one of the reasons for that is we are incredibly aggressive about value add. So we're constantly in decompression mode as well. And we're, you know, we're locked into some good rates here too. So um, now in addition, if you look at the speed at which, uh, you know, some of these companies work, like Western Wealth Capital is the one you mentioned. And they're forcing equity into these assets, like, you know, incredibly fast. So you're in a dynamic mode of decompressing cap rates in real time. And that effectively, again, deleverages the asset altogether. So if you found that confusing, listen to it again. But bottom line is, if you take nothing else away from this, I would tell you that interest rates in general, mortgage rates, um, will reflect inflation. So... If inflation is going up, rates are going to go up and vice versa. And so they tend to cancel each other out. Don't worry about it. That's what I would tell you. If anything, rates going down might be potentially a more of a concern simply because that's a much more of an indication of, of, a, of an economy that's not healthy. Now, we're doing, you know, BC class multifamily. I still think we're positioned very well. So, again, I don't worry about it too much. Okay, let's see. Next question from Chris Odegaard, another uh, investor club guy, and also another uh, Wealth Formula Network guy. So, Chris, here you go. Hey, Buck. Chris Odegaard here in Kent, Washington. My question relates to asset classes. If I remember correctly from Tom Wheelwright, he talks about four asset classes, paper, commodities, real assets, uh, real estate, Real assets, aka real estate and and businesses. So I believe that you know if I'm a shareholder in Coca Cola, 
that's paper. But I'm also a private shareholder in a number of small startup businesses. So does my ownership of private shares in small businesses constitute a, a paper asset or a business asset? And if that's still a paper asset, you know, what makes you a have what makes you, you know, have an investment in uh, a business? Since most of the time, you know, if you're an owner or part owner of a small, uh, non-publicly traded business, it's usually via share. So anyway, I'm kind of struggling with the distinction between paper and a business asset classification. So appreciate your help on that. Thanks. So, um, Chris, I think, I think first of all, let's back up and just say, you know, the reality is that these are, um, you know, these are just definitions, right? And there's gray area between them and we can use them, um, to guide us uh, a little bit as we appropriate things into the right quote unquote basket. But, you know, we shouldn't get hung up on them too much, but let's go back and review the definitions, right? So what are, what are paper assets? So, let's talk about what real assets are. So real assets are physical assets, right? And the, the thing that they are known for is that they have intrinsic worth due to their substance um, and properties. So precious metals, commodities, real estate, land, equipment, natural resources, these all have some kind of intrinsic value to them. Whereas uh, paper assets would be assets where ownership's defined only by paper, like as you mentioned, stocks and currencies and bonds and things like that. The reality is um, that in in some cases, like you're talking about, the definitions might not be as useful. It might be a better idea to simply ask yourself in a sort of a common sense way, well, what is it that I actually own? You know, if you own businesses uh, that are not asset heavy, Lots of, you know, and what I mean by assets heavy is like, you know, lots of machinery, stuff that you could liquidate. Uh, it's probably fair to put them in the, you know, the paper side of things. On the other hand, if you have a business that has a significant balance sheet of stuff that could be liquidated, you might actually put it in, you know, the real asset bucket. Um, but I will tell you, and knowing yours, what you're talking about, you invest in a lot of startups. Now, I would say that I personally uh, would probably never consider an investment, limited partner investment in a startup is a real, um, is a is a real asset. I mean, I think the bottom line is that most of those businesses are not going to have a significant amount of um, uh, equity or collateral uh, to to back your debt. So there's not a lot to liquidate. There's not a lot of intrinsic value. Uh, in those businesses other than their ability to produce income. So so that's where I would put that. Now, what gives real estate and precious metals? Let's go back to that um, real status. Well, it's ultimately, again, their inherent value uh, that, uh, that, that can't really be erased uh, the way a stock price can go to zero. Um, or frankly, if you talk about businesses, what happens if the business that you're invested in, Chris, what if that goes to zero, Right. Um, if there's no profit, if there's no uh, nothing to distribute, et cetera, it's not worth anything anymore, right? So that that to me is probably the biggest thing uh, to distinguish. Um, although I should I should bring up, I keep thinking about this as we're talking. That you know, I was listening to to Peter Schiff. Uh, I still like to listen to Peter. I think he's a smart guy. Just you know, he's a little stubborn and he's always thinking the 
this guy's following, which I don't, I don't agree with him, but you know, he's on this big rampage against Bitcoin and, uh, he's been debating all these people, uh, uh, about gold versus Bitcoin, which I, I actually think it's kind of a silly, uh, debate because I think the gold and Bitcoin people should sort of, you know, be on the same side. But you know, I think, I think, uh, you know, it might be in part because Peter sells gold and it's a good opportunity to get in front of people. But one of his arguments about gold is that the reason that it has value is that it has intrinsic properties. And those intrinsic properties are that it can be used, you know, to melt down and make stuff. And um, I think there's true. But the, the, pro the problem with this argument there, in my opinion, is that, seriously, for those of you who are out there, like, owning gold, if you've owned a few ounces of gold and you store it somewhere, are you seriously owning it because... Um, you know, because you might be able to use it sometime or because somebody might be able to use it, or are you using it because somebody thinks it has a value? I would argue that the reason you own it in most cases, unless you're like a big jewelry buff or whatever, is because somebody, because you are, you want somebody else to, you know, at some point pay you more for that than uh, what you bought it for. So in that respect, it's not a whole lot different from like Bitcoin, right? Like, um, you know, the value of gold, it has to do with the fact that it also has a monetary value. It's really seen that way. If you took that out of it and all of it, it was just a matter of it being jewelry, it would not be worth as much as it is. But anyway, that's my my take on that. A little unrelated, but I thought I would throw in that commentary. Uh, next question, let's see, is from uh, Raman Rafi. Here we go. Hi, Buck. I'm a big listener to your podcast. I'm a physician, a general practitioner. I've been out of residency for about a decade now. I have been an employed physician working for a larger corporation, making house calls and a hospice director for their large healthcare organization, which actually has recently been bought by an insurance company. Um, that, that's a whole nother story. Um, I actually went to medical school in California, but I now live in the Midwest. Um, I didn't match in California, and I've always wondered if it's feasible for me to open up my own private practice. Um, I don't know enough about the tax structures, reimbursement, et cetera, et cetera. I understand insurances are a big uh, problem, and you have to hire a lot of staff. That's a waste of resources to fight the insurances. Um, but um, I was debating if a solo practitioner is doable, perhaps direct primary care. And if so, uh, is one better off just doing a cash-based practice and then the legal structure of either having an LLC or an S-Corp or C-Corp? Uh, I don't know if you can elaborate on that. That's something I guess I need to talk to an accountant about. But I figured I'd ask you, and uh, you might know, you might not, but uh, I enjoy listening to your podcast. It's amazing how many physicians out there are in the same uh, boat. Thanks for your time. All right. So we do have a lot of physician listeners, non-physicians too. Probably about, if in case you're wondering, it's probably about not just physicians, but healthcare people, right? So, you know, physicians, dentists, and, um, you, know, you know, eye doctors and, you know, all, all sorts of stuff, but uh, chiropractors. 
Um, and that's probably because, well, I'm, I've had a healthcare background myself, uh, doing a few different kinds of surgery and stuff like that. But, um, so, uh, thanks for the question. I'm going to try to, I mean, there's a lot there. And I think honestly, the truth of the matter is I'm, I'm not necessarily an expert on all of these issues, but, um, you know, some of the things I can answer, I think would be relative, relatively, uh, useful to anybody who's thinking about going on their own. Uh, first of all, I'd say that if you're starting your own thing, um, you know, an LLC is is generally going to always be the best structure for a small business uh, for maximal f- uh, flexibility. You can take a, you, if for some reason you want to be taxed as a C-Corp, uh, you could, uh, or you do an S-selection. So that's pretty easy. The answer to your question of, you know, can you do it? The answer is absolutely yes. If there are solo practitioners out there now, um, then you can do it and you could probably do it better. And that's always generally been my philosophy when starting businesses, usually I don't start businesses, I'm, you know, I don't start businesses that have not in some way, shape or form shown that they can be a success. I usually rip off somebody's idea and then pivot a little bit, add a little bit something and execute. And so, um, so I think to the extent that there are plenty of sole practitioners out there in California still, I think it absolutely can be done. Um, you know, so your question about cash versus insurance-based medicine, just keeping it brief, I'll tell you that uh, it's not really an expertise of mine, but by um, but what I can tell you is that if you if you coming out of the door with any business, if it's just a cash business, uh, you're going to have to advertise like crazy and you're going to have to uh, run it like a business, which not everybody is ready for. So the nice thing for physicians and dentists sometimes is that, you know, uh, if you have if you do take third party payers like you know these insurance companies they drive patients to your door so uh especially in the area of of primary care there's a shortage so i, I don't think you'd have any trouble uh, if you took insurance um uh getting filled up really quickly and succeeding now as far as advice on how to move forward in general uh first you know again and this applies to anybody who's starting a business in anything in my opinion Find first of all, find somebody who's doing what you um, you know you want to do in another market and kind of copy them. If you can reach out to them, even better uh, if they're not in a competing market. But find in your case, find a you know a solo practitioner in a market that's similar um, to what you're trying to do and is showing a success. And you know, see if they're willing to spend some time with you. I would offer to pay them. Because no one, everybody's helpful until it's like, damn, I'm busy and this guy wants me to help him. But I think if you say, hey, you know, you got a successful thing there. I'm looking for some help and, you know, looking for some consulting from a successful practice. It might be useful. Another option, of course, is to go straight to a consultant. And again, this applies to every business, in my opinion. Um, Of course, there's a lot of, uh, you know, consultants out there. I had one for my first uh, practice, uh, ultimately it was a cosmetic surgery business. And again, I ran this thing, not like a medical thing. I didn't take any third party insurance and stuff, but I marketed like crazy. I knew nothing about running a business or marketing uh, when I started this. The business I set out um, uh, to start ended up looking nothing like the one I ended up with. The one I ended up with was a lot better because I learned a lot on, on the job. But a lot of the back end things, whether it's medical, whether it's you know uh, any kind of business, are the same, right? I mean, you you 
you got to figure out how do you pay bills, how do you set up all the systems, accounting, payroll. Uh, and that's for me where the consulting was like a really useful thing. And I'm, uh, you know, at the time, I think I, I must have paid like, I don't know, $25,000, $30,000 for it. And it seemed really expensive. But I can tell you in any startup situation, you are much better off spending some money up front with someone holding your hand, getting you started quickly. Uh, and, you know, I have been, you know, I literally have friends. I have a couple of friends who've been trying to start up their own practices from for multiple years now. And they could have been up and running in like three months if they just had paid somebody to get it done. So don't be that person, you know. Um, anyway, that's a message for everyone, really. If you have a problem, now remember this. If you have a problem that you can write a check to someone to fix, you don't have a problem, right? So that's the way you deal with this stuff. Don't spend all your time trying to deal with stupid little problems. Uh, think of yourself as a, you know, is a thoroughbred, right? I mean, you'll save yourself for, you know, high value tasks. Uh, if you mess around and try to do everything yourself, you're going to end up worse. Uh, I pretty much guarantee it. That goes for anyone starting any kind of business for the first time. So finally, I would just say that um, I don't know a single uh, I don't know a single healthcare provider in particular, and I I know there's a lot of you out there with your own practice that once you have your own thing uh, would ever go back to working for someone else, or who would ever want to go back for working for someone else. I know some of you have done it after you sold your practice, which is different. You're sitting on a huge chunk of cash, but um, if you have any sort of entrepreneurial spirit uh, and like the idea of not having limits on the upper end, uh, I would highly encourage it. All right. So hopefully that's helpful. And, you know, it's broadly, uh, I think it's broadly applicable to a lot of people who have ever contemplated um, any kind of um, entrepreneurial activity. So let's see, uh, I have the last uh, one that's an actual voice one. So let's do that from Ravi. Hi, Buck. This is Ravi Ganta. I just wanted to say thank you for all of your hard work and for providing such valuable information to this community. Uh, as part of the Investor Club, I've gained so much knowledge from you as well as from your guests on your podcast. Uh, unfortunately, I have not been able to attend the, um, the meetup, and I won't be able to go to the next meetup in uh, Dallas in September. Uh, however, I was wondering if you would consider uh, creating a directory of some sort where those who are willing to provide their name, their mailing address, email address, or even phone number to create a community where we can interact with each other. You know, perhaps by having this information, we can even meet up with each other in different places uh, informally and also discuss things. You know, do, we may all, many of us are in the medical field and other specialties or other aspects of business and perhaps developing contacts in that way. Just a thought. Uh, but once again, thank you for your uh, insightful information. And I look forward to continuing to work with you. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Ravi. Ravi, again, is a uh, member of uh, the investor group. Now, I don't think Ravi's part of Wealth Formula Network. And that could be part of the, the uh, confusion, or not confusion, but part of the question, the answer to the question, which is, uh, is there a community that you could join or, ha you know, or have some additional contact? The first thing I'm going to tell you there is that's really what Wealth Formula Network was really all about. So Wealth Formula Network is the online private community 
Um, we have, uh, you know, a very strong community. There are a lot of people who are really just interested in connecting with one another. Um, it is, uh, of course, that started out with the course, and the course was with, you know, with Tom Wheelwright, uh, Ken McElroy, real estate guys, a bunch of guys, and it was sort of a, uh, gives you the basis, um, gives you the foundation for things that we talk about. And then we have these biweekly phone calls. These biweekly phone calls are very useful. Uh, they're not just phone calls, they're Zoom phone calls, Zoom videos, so we can see each other. It's very personal. And we have very in-depth conversations on people who are on uh, in Wealth Formula Network often uh, create relationships offline, off community, and that's certainly an option for you. Now, in terms of online communities, I would say that I probably wouldn't do anything else. And the reason being that anytime you preside over an online community, um, you kind of have to keep an eye on it. And I um, I have Wealth Formula Network, and that's really all I really want to focus in on. I don't really want to you know, monitor other sites. Um, as far as, you know, people putting their information out and stuff, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. The thing that I worry about is if it's anywhere that people can access, uh, I worry about your privacy because, um, you know, we have an extremely, uh, robust audience here, including, you know, an accredited investor list of over a thousand people. And, and, um, if there's some like, you know, advisors, registered advisors, or, you know, people who are trying to get to those people, they will spam you like crazy if they ever got a hold of that. But Ravi, let me think about it because there could be a way to do, um, you know, do what you're talking about to a certain extent. Um, you know, we certainly, like I said, we certainly already do this kind of thing in, within Wealth Formula Network. And if that's of interest to you, check it out, wealthformularoadmap.com. Um, I think you'd uh, probably really enjoy that if, if you enjoy the show. So, all right. Um, I don't have any recorded questions, but I have a, a couple of written ones. So I'm going to get to those. Uh, the first one is, um, is from Robert, uh, Robert McLeod. And he says, I've been listening to your podcast for the last couple of years now, and I know you're a huge proponent of investing in real estate assets, especially multifamily. I can't remember if you've ever discussed mobile homes. I was wondering if you've looked into investing in or thought of uh, mobile home park space. Thanks for the informative podcast. Um, so it's a sensitive thing because I know there's a lot of people who are interested in the people who listen to this and friends of mine who are involved in this. But I'll, you ask, I'll answer. To be honest, I'm not a big fan of that space right now. Um, here's why. The cap rates on these things, they're approaching multifamily real estate. Right, multifamily can always be improved significantly and attract higher level tenants, um, and then areas gentrify. They get improved. I mean, there's some improvement ability in mobile home parks, right? But it's really capped. I mean, think about it. At some point, you don't want to live in a damn mobile home anymore, right? So um, here's a good example of you know how multifamily doesn't really have on that cap. Chicago. Um, Lincoln Park is one of the like fanciest parts of Chicago. It's really expensive, jam-packed full of mansions and stuff now. But there's also a bunch of apartment buildings that are over 100 years old. And, um, you know, 40 years ago, Lincoln Park was an absolute dump, and it was dangerous, and no one wanted to live there. Uh, and then it got gentrified, and all these places that were probably low-income housing are now these incredibly luxurious apartments have been upgraded like crazy. And now they are, uh, you know, now, now they're multi-million dollar assets selling at ridiculous cap rates. Now tell me, how do you do that with a mobile home community? 
You can't, right? So at some point, if people are doing well, they want to move out of a mobile home park. So you can't keep raising rents and expect people to live there. So that's one reason. So um, now, so if you're capped on, on appreciation of rents, it's going to um, cap your equity upside. So um, now the syndicators out there that I'm seeing, especially on the limited partner side, are giving returns that frankly are inferior to what we're getting in multifamily in investor club by a long shot. I know some of you like this area, but I don't. And I, I sure as hell would never invest in a limited partnership like this for returns that are less than double digit. Um, again, uh, that's just me though. So um, finally, let me just say this. My philosophy right now in general, buy quality assets, don't buy crap. Okay. I see people posting stuff on Facebook about single family, you know, class C, class D homes they bought were supposed to cash flow like crazy. And they, you know, all they have is problems now. Um, you know, the idea is that uh, w these things might look good on numbers, but when you add in the CapEx and paying for damages and new tenants, I mean, they may not cash flow at all. People are losing money on this stuff left and right. So, there's a reason why these numbers look so good on paper because they're not good investments and people are trying to sell you them. So bottom line is I'm not saying that mobile home parks are, you know, bad for everyone. I'm just saying that I personally look at the alternative and the alternatives for me are better. Uh, I prefer to focus on high quality assets and markets that are growing quickly, right? I mean, to me, I mean, it may be boring and repetitive what I do, but I can tell you from personal experience it works. And I think chasing yield in the uh, idea of going to lower quality assets or going to tertiary markets is a very, very bad idea because those are the markets, those are the areas, in my view, that are going to suffer the most uh, if and when there's a significant uh, recessionary activity or, or market turnaround. So hopefully that answers that. Um, next question, Mark Javorik. Hello. So can you talk about on your podcast about real estate professional? I feel like it's uh, the ultimate green card to play in real estate as passive losses. Are you limited? Everyone only talks about this powerful designation briefly, like the 750 hour rule. Can two people count towards those? What are the max deductions? And then he says for LP is, uh, what are the max deductions one can get without being a real estate professional? Um, a show detailing all these options. Well, let me just be brief about this. Um, the the real estate professional reason people are brief about it is because for the most part, they're the definition of real estate professional is this. Okay, seven seven hundred fifty hours of documented uh, real estate. Um, you know, actual work in real estate, like not just being a limited partner, but you know, looking for real estate, acquiring, you know, talking to people, whatever. Um, you got to have that. 750 hours per uh, year, and it can't be two people. No, it has to be one person. Um, and uh, you can't have anything that you're doing more of. So it's not, uh, I've heard some people say they're going to try to do it with a full-time job. I just don't recommend it. I think the IRS is going to not take you seriously in that situation. Um, but, you know, you could try. Um, in that situation, of course, the losses, there's no cap to your losses. Um, you know, you can, uh, the beauty of it is what what you're talking about is, uh, say you have a spouse who has a W has W two income, uh, that's active income. Uh, but as you as a as a professional real estate professional, all of the passive losses that you generate through depreciation, 
where most people who are not real estate investors can only offset those against passive investments, you can offset that against active, uh, active income because your losses as a real estate professional, your what would be passive losses become activated. So if you've got a hundred thousand dollar loss from real estate depreciation, you could offset, you know, your hundred thousand dollars of your wife's active income um, because you're filing jointly, right? So that's that's the holy grail. You're right. I think it's a big deal. Um, and so, but that's really all there is to it. I mean, you have to find a CPA who can guide you on this. Um, you know, I would recommend, uh, you know, for some of you wealth ability and pretty much anybody there is going to tell you all the right rules, but the really, the issue with the, that is that you got to find a CPA who's going to tell you how to do it and then stand by you in, in the event of an audit. An audit's not a bad, you know, it's not the end of the world. It happens. Anybody who's making money, but you got to have somebody who is actually, you know, going to defend that successfully. So anyway, that's it. In terms of the uh, caps about, you know, being a limited partner and what are some of the maximum deductions you can get without being a real estate professional, the honest truth is that I don't, I don't know that there's any really uh, maximum deductions for real estate. I mean, listen, if you have, um, if you have a hundred thousand dollars or two hundred thousand or a million dollars of passive income and you have those losses, um, you have passive losses out of the same amount, you could deduct it all. So there's no cap at all. I mean, the only thing I think there's a cap on, I think charitable givings about 50%. Um, you know, charitable givings 50%. Uh, but you know, and then, and then there's all your typical things uh, that I, I don't, you know, I don't really get into about, you know, the basic accounting deductions and things like that for other things. But I'll tell you from the standpoint of real estate, there really is no cap on deductions. It's just, you know, it's what you have, whatever you, if you're in the passive column uh, as, as a non-real estate professional, that's, you can deduct all of that. Uh, and then in the active side, you can deduct all of your depreciation against all of, all of your income. Um, so that's, uh, that's pretty straightforward. Um, okay, last question um, is from Betty, uh, and she said, Buck, I heard you talking about a bad drug reaction you had in Minneapolis. What was the drug that gave you the bad reaction? Uh, yeah, so let me uh, let me tell you about that. I um, So it was the last show I talked about. That was my near-death experience uh, thing where I thought I was going to die. Listen to this show. You'll, you'll, you'll get the whole story. But bottom line is, as it turned out, it was a CBD drug. Uh, tincture. And I took some CBD for my back in, um, in Santa Barbara and it worked really well for me. And then, um, I don't know what was in this bottle that I bought, but it just gave me some sort of crazy out of body experience. And I'm, it wasn't like being stoned. Okay. I, you know, I've been to college. I know what that feels like, but something was very wrong. Um, anyway, it was the CBD. Uh, it's a long story. Bottom line is if you are interested in that, story and how, what I came of it. Listen to a show where uh, I talk about this in the last show, I think. It was probably last week, according to where this is. And uh, you'll hear about that. Um, By the way, I'll say say that, you know, riffing off that last show, I'm I'm looking at getting those vintage cars. Um, The two things that matter the most, the lessons that I had there uh, were to, you know, make sure to take care of your family. So look at Wealth Formula Banking, make sure you, you know, uh, get into that and 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 try to you know align your investments with uh, 
legacy to a certain extent. That's one of my takeaways. The other one was to try to have a little bit of fun here and and don't always push it away uh, into delayed gratification. Okay, that's it for the questions today, and uh, we will be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. I want to take this opportunity to remind you to sign up for our meetup in uh, Dallas, Texas, coming up on September 27th and 28th. There's a few spots left. Uh, we have a uh, we you know we have a cap of only 100 people. We try to keep it really um, you know so that we can all kind of get to know each other. It's a little uh, you know it's a little bit more quaint than your usual thousand person uh, big big conference and stuff. So definitely check that out at wealthformulaevents.com. And then one last uh, favor I have, I don't ask for this very often, but if you would, if you like this show, if you like what we're doing here, make sure you go to wealthformula.com. There's a tab on there um, that says, you know, give us a five-star review, click on it, go to iTunes, give us a five-star review, tell us how you feel, because that's how we continue to climb the ranks in terms of podcasts, get more listeners and ultimately get better guests and a better show. That's it for me this week. This is Buck Jaffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Safe with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.